0: This week, we are in Daniel. Uh, if you've been here before and, and you've been here when I am up here, you'll know that every time I'm up here preaching, we are just going through the book of Daniel chapter by chapter. Uh, uh, we, we haven't got in, gotten into Daniel in a while. I think it was uh, before May or, or, or early May. So I'm glad that we get to continue this. Uh, we're in Daniel chapter 5 today. Uh, so you can turn there, Daniel chapter 5. And as you're turning there, I just want to tell you a quick story before we actually read. Uh, It's about a man named Johann Rahl. I don't know if anyone in here knows who Johann Rahl is. If you do, I'm I'm actually really impressed. Johann Rahl was a commander of the Hessian army that came over when when the British were trying to squash this rebellion of the colonists that it would take them uh, just a second to do. They hired these German soldiers. They were called Hessians. And Johann Rahl was one of those Hessian soldiers, in fact, he was a colonel. And he was stationed in Trenton, New Jersey, on December 24th, 1776. Now, on the American side, the troops' morale was really, really low. It was a tough winter, they weren't winning a lot of victories, and uh, George Washington decided that they needed some decisive victory just to kind of get the morale of the troops to, to bolster morale. And so they decided that they were going to cross the Delaware River and attack Trenton, New Jersey, uh, where the Hessians were stationed. Now, the Americans had a spy that was uh, had kind of infiltrated into uh, the town of Trenton, and uh, he was a prominent businessman, and he, he masqueraded as a Tory or a loyalist. That is, someone who had British sympathies. And so he kind of convinced everyone in that town that uh, the Americans weren't going to attack. They weren't planning an attack uh, He he was a prominent businessman. He had done deals with the Americans. He had done deals with The the English crown and so he had told them "Yeah, America's not attacking the colonists are not attacking so uh, it, it's, it's no big deal and they also had a bunch of false alarms. There were people there were times where um, They got information that the the colonists were coming to attack them and it didn't happen so Johann Rahl and his army Uh, decided that they were going to celebrate. It was Christmas Eve and he was in the midst of one of his uh, famous poker games and he did not like to be interrupted during these poker games. Well, as the Americans are crossing the Delaware River, there was another loyalist, a farmer, who saw Washington and his troops making their way across the Delaware River. And he went and he told the Hessians in Trenton, New Jersey that they were on their way. Well, nobody wanted to interrupt Johann Rawls poker game because if you did it didn't work out too well for you. So they just wrote on a note America's coming, the colonists are coming, something uh, to that effect, and they gave it to him. He took the note, he put it in his coat pocket, continued to play his poker game. A few hours later the Americans arrive. It was a decisive victory and in the process Johann Rawl was mortally wounded. And as he's dying in his coat pocket, is the note that says, America's coming. You see, Johann Raw was given more than sufficient evidence to tell him that an attack was coming. But he was not on watch. He didn't listen to the evidence. And his judgment came, and he died. And in Daniel 5, we're gonna look at this this new person, Belshazzar, we haven't met him yet. But Belshazzar was a king after Nebuchadnezzar, and he too is going to rebel against God and be given sufficient evidence, sufficient knowledge that he is rebelling against God. And he's going to be found wanting. And This is all too familiar for us. He is not ready when judgment comes. And this begs us to ask the question, are we ready? So let's now turn to Daniel chapter 5. We're going to read uh, just verses 1 through 9 and then we're going to pray. And then we're going to get into it. (coughs) Uh, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of them, in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple of the, the out of the temple the house of the god in, of god in jerusalem and the king and his lords his wives and his concubines drank from them they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver bronze iron wood and stone Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, his knees knocked together, and the king called loudly, bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and be the third ruler in the kingdom. And then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then the king, Belshazzar, was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. Let's pray. Dear Lord, as we look at the story of Belshazzar and the judgment that he faced, God, help us to understand that. Just like Belshazzar was uh, given sufficient knowledge of his uh, predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, and his rebellion, and chose not to humble his heart, we too have been given that knowledge, God. We have been given the knowledge that we have rebelled against you, and we need to submit to you. God, help us to see this. And then God, help us to take, ultimately take away hope and joy in the fact that Christ did perfectly submit to you, and that if we follow him, we are counted. As righteous. We love you, Lord. Uh, be with me as I preach the word, help it to be clear. God be with our community, uh, be with Westerville, Lord be with Columbus. As the uh, summer starts to close and the school year is, is uh, beginning to start up, help us as Christians to um, make sure that we are not living lives that are uh, too busy or too uh, chaotic to spend time with you. Lord, help us to pause and to stop and to understand that our purpose is to bring glory to you. We love you, Lord. Amen. All right, so uh, before we break this down, before we break down the first uh, nine verses, let's just look at, take a look at who, who is this new guy that we're introduced to. The last time that we were in Daniel, uh, it was King Nebuchadnezzar who was on the throne. Uh, he, he was the king of Babylon. And so we ha- there's a new king here. Uh, his name is Belshazzar. Uh, he most likely ruled from uh, 553 BC to 539. And uh, he is the last ruler, along with his father. It's kind of um, complicated. Before, actually, so you'll hear him referred to in the text as like the son of Nebuchadnezzar, or that Nebuchadnezzar was his, was his father. However, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't his actual father as we would um, write, so father for us is is pretty strict. It means dad, right? Your father is your dad. Um, Ancient literature and like more Eastern literature, the term father was a little more usefully used. It it could mean grandfather, which uh, there's some evidence that points to maybe Nebuchadnezzar was his grandfather, or it could even just mean Nebuchadnezzar was a king of Babylon, came before Belshazzar. Belshazzar was after him, and so it's his father in a sense, so when they refer to him as father uh, that's what they mean uh, that's what daniel means and uh Belshazzar did actually have a have a real father and he he was also a king and uh Belshazzar and his father took part in this coup to overthrow um possibly king's King Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, who was at the throne at the time, and they overthrow that. That they overthrew that king, um, had him killed, and then took the throne for themselves. Belshazzar did this because at, at this time his father was really old, his, his real father, and he knew that his father wouldn't be king very long, and then he would be able to take the throne. So so we learn that clearly this Belshazzar is, is a pretty ruthless man. He's, he's a man full of pride. He, he wants the throne. Uh, we see this in historical documents of him, but we, we see it most clearly in, in this uh, text that we read right here. Belshazzar decides to throw a feast for thousands of his lords. Now, we put the little quotes there because he, he wasn't just some nice guy who's trying to throw a feast for a thousand of his lords. He threw this feast to say, hey, look how awesome I am. Look at my kingdom. Look at my rule. My, my lords, my subjects, look at me. Submit to me. It was a proclamation of how great he was. And at this feast, we see Belshazzar's uh, rebellion against God in a, in a number of different ways. And in fact, if you look at Daniel 1, 2, 3, and 4, these, this feast kind of mirrors Daniel chapter 1, Daniel chapter 2, 3, and 4 in a, in a couple of ways. Uh, if you look at Daniel 1, if you remember back to when we talked about Daniel 1, King Nebuchadnezzar, in the, in the very beginning of Daniel 1, has attacked Jerusalem. And when he attacked Jerusalem under, under God's sovereign power, under God's sovereign will, he takes vessels, he desecrates the temple of God and takes vessels out of the, the temple of God. And what we see at the beginning of this passage, Belshazzar removes those same vessels, further desecrating these items, telling God, hey, I, I don't respect you, I don't submit to you, right? You kind of see this uh, mirror there. If you look at Daniel 3, if you jump to Daniel 3, King Nebuchadnezzar has uh, created this giant golden image and is participating in idolatry, idol worship. And not only that, he leads his entire nation to it. He has his entire nation participate in this idol worship. Belshazzar, in the same way, during this feast, takes the vessels, fills them with wine, they drink from them, and they praise the gods of iron, gold, silver, bronze. He too is participating in idolatry and, and leading his people, his subjects that are there into idolatry. There's this kind of mirror there. And, and God responds in similar ways. In Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 4, God infiltrates the mind of Nebuchadnezzar. He gives him these dreams that haunt him and Nebuchadnezzar can't find out the meaning he, he knows he's guilty of sin, and so he's just greatly convicted by these. And Belshazzar, his party is infiltrated by God. Uh, human fingers come down, and they write a message in the wall. And it leaves Belshazzar with changed color, his, his limbs going weak, his knees knocking. So we see this mirror, and, and, and ultimately you come to the conclusion that Belshazzar pulls off in like one paragraph what Nebuchadnezzar took four chapters to do. Uh, I mean, not really, but they, they were probably committing idolatry many other times besides the stories that we read here. However, the point by Daniel is clear. The point in these first five chapters is clear. Humble yourself before the good and the holy and the mighty sovereign God. God has raised you up and God can take you down, right? God has giving you good things, and and those things can be taken. Humble yourself before God, right? The whole theme of Daniel is that God is sovereign always. God is in control. God is the one who puts people in power. And Belshazzar does not do this. He throws a feast. They commit idol worship. Uh, They basically say the entire time, God, we do not submit to you. They praise God gods of wood and stone. And, and, and we might look at Belshazzar here and say, man, that dude was pretty bad. <laughs> I'm not like that. And I'm here to tell you that, yeah, you are. We are like Belshazzar. Paul tells us in Romans 1, verse 25, that uh, we have exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and we worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. See, this is called idolatry. This is called idol worship. This is what, what it looks like when we don't submit to God. We have idols in our lives and yet, we, we might not be out like build, carving these wooden totem poles and sticking them in our backyard and like dancing around them and bowing to them. I, I hope no one in here is doing that. If you are, I'm glad you're here and let's just talk after the service. But our idolatry comes from the same heart. It, just, it, it might look differently. We, we got into idol worship uh, in, in depth in, in Daniel chapter 3, so I'm not going to spend a, a ton of time here, but I do just kind of want to go through a quick list. It's not an exhaustive list of ways that our heart, ways that we see idol worship, ways we see an unsubmitted heart to God um, now. One thing that popped into my head is a father of two is our family. Our families can absolutely be idols for us. I look at my son and my daughter and, and there's times, I mean, I, there's times I, I, I fall into this temptation. I'm like, I am going to do anything I can to protect my son and daughter. But that anything, if it crosses God's commands, we then become the ones hurting our family. Our idolatry of our families has caused us to harm them far more than any protection we could give them. If we elevate money, and along with money, comfort, and security, and the things that go along with that, we may end up doing, breaking God's commands to, to find this money and this comfort, right? Money is not bad. Um, pr- pr- providing for our families and, and working hard, right? Even if, we're, if you are not married or you're not providing for little ones or something like that, um, working hard, working diligently is good, but if, if it becomes our main motivation, our, our idols, then, then it is, it is bad. Uh, maybe it's thrill. Maybe you're the type of person that just goes from one thing to the next. Maybe it's one relationship to the next relationship. Or maybe it's really just like one uh, massive extravagant trip to the next. Or, or one uh, thrill-seeking activity to the next thing, and you're just on to the next, on to the next. And this sense of thrill, which is, again, a, a good thing that God created, has become an idol for you. Maybe it's sex. Maybe it's the actual act of sex and the ways that our brains twists that has become an idol for you. Or, or maybe it's your, your identity within how you were created. We live in a culture today where, where you're told the way that you're created doesn't matter. And however you view yourself, that's what matters. And... And in, in a very loving way, I would, I would say to those people, you are idolizing your view of yourself over the way God views you, the way God has created you. So there's all these, all these ways that we have a common rebellion with Belshazzar, right? That's the first point today, a common rebellion. Belshazzar has rebelled, and we also have rebelled. So what do we do? Because one day, we're gonna have to take account for the ways that we've rebelled. Like, <laughs> the way, like the ways that you and I, when we're going through that list, the things that popped into our head, and it's not an exhaustive list, so if there were any other ways, the things that popped into our head, the ways that you and I have rebelled against God, we are going to have to take account for those when judgment comes. And if something doesn't happen, then we're going to be far more terrified than Belshazzar was in this story. So what do we do? Well, there's a very hopeful, joy-filled answer, and we're getting to that at the end. But if we continue in the text, unfortunately, what we do, what we do, is often what Belshazzar did. We just handle it. We, we just handle it. We fix it. We've got problems, and, and we handle them. We fix them. Let's look at 7 and 8. Again, let's read those. Uh, so, the message has been delivered to Belshazzar. He doesn't know what it means yet. Um, but he's obviously terrified. He doesn't have any reason to, uh, I, I was, uh, he, he has no reason to think that this is like a hope-filled message. He knows he's sinning. And, and this is what he does. The king calls loudly to bring the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. And the king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. So Belshazzar decides that he's going to fix this. He is terrified. This message comes, and he kind of pulls the ace, the ace card up his sleeve, his, his wisest people of Babylon. He brings them in, and they're going to figure this problem out for him. And listen, he throws all the stops at them. He says, I'm going to make you the third ruler in the kingdom. I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to make sure your life is, is, is uh, comfortable and easy for the rest of your life if you can tell me what this means. He wants to figure this out. He's throwing out all the steps. It made me think of, when I was reading this, just Belshazzar's demeanor, it made me think of uh, whenever I'm trying to get my son to go to sleep. Listen, my, my son is awesome. He's, like, honestly, like probably one of the chillest three-year-olds I've ever met, but he just does not sleep. And it'll take, like, I'm not kidding, like, there are times my wife and I have been up in that room for like three hours waiting for him to go to bed. And so there was one night where my wife was working, and um, I was up there with Kai, and I had to get some stuff done. I don't know what it was. Uh, I probably had something in the fridge I wanted to eat. And uh, just being honest. And I was just like, Kai, go to bed, man. Come on. What, like, what's it going to take? What's it going to take? And we've been potty training him, and so we've been giving him a treat anytime he uses the toilet, especially early on so he's laying in bed and he's almost asleep. But then I see his eyes just go. And he remembers I didn't give him a treat the last time he used the potty. And he goes, treat, Dada? And I'm just like, buddy, what's it going to take, man? Listen, I'll give you a treat in the morning. I I didn't actually say this, but I'm thinking at this moment, I'll do anything I can to get him to go to bed. I'm like, listen, we'll go to Kroger. We'll get a pack of Oreos. Milk, you want what? Chocolate milk? All right, chocolate milk. Whole chocolate milk, pack of Oreos in the morning. Curious George on the TV, chilling. Just go to bed right now. I am willing to do anything I can to get Kai to go to sleep. And Belshazzar is willing to do anything he can to find his peace, to find his comfort. The problem is he's doing it his way. And it's not going to work. It's not going to work. Listen, we know at some point, well, well at some point he should have probably paid attention to Nebuchadnezzar in the past chapters. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar called in these guys like a million times and it never worked out for him. Um, But in all reality, these guys probably solved problems. They're pretty smart people. I mean, this is a large kingdom. They're probably pretty smart people and there were probably some some worldly earthly problems that these guys were able to solve. He wouldn't call them in if they didn't have a a track record of, of figuring something out. So he thinks when he calls these guys in that they're going to solve the problem. The problem is when we try to use worldly earthly knowledge to solve supernatural problems, to solve the problem of sin. It's never going to work. And when it doesn't work, we'll be like Belshazzar. He was afraid. If you look back at the text, he was afraid when the hand came and wrote on the wall. And then he thinks, oh, I've got my my wise people. He calls them in, they don't fix it. And then it says he was greatly alarmed. So he kind of went through this process of, of being terrified. Oh wait, I've got a solution to this but it doesn't work and then he's greatly alarmed. It says he's greatly alarmed, his color changes again. And so wh- whether we admit it or not, we've all faced the reality and the detriment of our sin. And if we're not rooting our faith in the one who presides over it all, we're gonna make these futile attempts to fix it and then it's gonna leave us crushed when it doesn't work. I think a couple ways that we try to fix things, I know, I know I'm, I'm guilty of this at times, I'm just, just doing enough good to cover the bad, right? If you look at almost any other religion, what's taught is just do enough good to, to cover up the bad. But that never works, because that good doesn't get rid of the bad. No matter how much good you pile on here, the bad is still there. Uh, maybe it's just, just handling it. Pulling, up, pulling ourselves up. I'm tough enough. I'm strong enough. I am gonna handle this. I'm gonna fix this. Uh, it could be just hearing what you want to hear, listening to foolish counsel. There's, there's been two people in my life uh, that, that I think of. When they, they proclaimed to be Christians. One of them was a student, and one was just more of a mentor, my buddy. And they both ended up kind of, uh, like going a different way. Uh, their faith proved to just not be legitimate faith. And both of them cited as their like new, like they, they got new knowledge and they were enlightened. Both of them cited like. Truth Seeker 775 on YouTube as their source. And, and so we just want to hear what we want to hear, and we go to uh, like cheap sources, or, or we, we, we receive foolish counsel. Another way we try to handle this is, this, this is one that I, I am definitely guilty of. We just stay busy. We just keep going. We stay busy. We don't think about the problem. We ignore the problem. We just keep going. I fall into that. Uh, It could be inner peace. Our world just teaches, hey, be at peace with yourself. If you're you're at peace with yourself, it's okay. And I've still yet to have someone explain to me how being at peace with yourself fixes all the wrong you've done to other people, and more importantly, the the way you have rebelled against God. And so all these ways that we try to fix things are not going to work. The problem of sin is not going to be fixed with our own heads. We see this with Belshazzar. He's got this idea, and it doesn't. And so one of, the, one of two things will happen. It either all comes crashing down. It doesn't work right away and it all comes crashing down. Or it, it works for a little while. Like I said, these, these wise people probably solved problems at times. But when we're faced with, with the problem of sin, it's not going to work. And then it all comes crashing down. Our, our DIY fixes might work for a while. But it's not going to work for forever. And so we'll be left... Just like Belshazzar. Greatly alarmed, our color changed, our limbs weak. So where does that leave us? Because we've established that we have this common rebellion with Belshazzar. And while we might express it differently, we've all partaken in idol worship or, or pride or, or many other evils that, that I haven't listed here. and we've, all, we've also established that we can't solve this problem on our own. And so I know what you're thinking, Ben, this is a really encouraging message. <laughs> and I'm here to tell you, it's about to get worse. <laughs> it's gonna get good, but it's gonna get worse before it gets good, because judgment's coming. If we continue in the text, we see judgment is coming. The fingers have come, they've wrote it, written a message on the wall, and this is not a message of, of victory or hope. It's a message of judgment. It's not a message of favorable judgment. But it's, it's, it's a judgment that's ultimately going to say, Belshazzar, you are going to die and your kingdom is about to crumble. So let's just continue in the passage and, and see where this goes. I'm just going to summarize verses 10 through 17 for you, and then we'll read 18 through uh, 28. So 10 through 17, the queen comes in. She remembers there's this guy named Daniel. Uh, Daniel kind of helped Nebuchadnezzar out of some of these, these problems. She remembers that. She's like, hey, um, call on this dude. So the king calls on Daniel. He offers him these same rewards. Daniel says, I don't need those rewards. And that's kind of where we're at. So let's start in 18. O king, the most high God, gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. And whom he would, he kept alive. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven. Until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind, and sets over it whom He will. And you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you lifted yourself up. But you have, lift, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought out, have been brought in before you. And you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. You have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and in whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent and the writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Balthazar's judgment has come in the form of four words. Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. These words literally translated mean numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. Daniel tells us what that means. It means the days of your kingdom have been numbered. Babylon is, is about to end. The Babylonian Empire is coming to an end. Weighed, Belshazzar, you have been weighed in the balances, and you have been found wanting and then divided. Your kingdom will be divided up to the Medes and the Persians. In a couple commentaries and sermons that I was listening to on on Daniel 5, they mentioned the Greek historian Herodotus. And Herodotus' account of the Persians coming to conquer Babylon is that they came to the the flow of the Euphrates Euphrates, and they actually dammed it up. They couldn't get across, they couldn't get their army across to go conquer Babylon, so they dammed it up and, and they flooded it. But what happened was it made it shallower, so they could literally just walk under the river gates up to the city. So this very night of the party, the Persians were coming to the door of Babylon. However, they wouldn't have gotten in Babylon, according to Herodotus, if these uh, bronze inner gates to the city hadn't been unlocked. But when they got to them, they found them unlocked. You see, the very night that Belshazzar was killed, the very night that that hand was sent, In God's sovereignty, judgment was coming. I mean, look at how God works here. The feast is being thrown, the message sent. And all during that time, the Persians are figuring out how to cross the Euphrates. And then they get to the gates, and the gates are unlocked. And it brings the end of the Babylonian Empire. And it brings judgment on Belshazzar, which ultimately ends in his death. And all this happens under the sovereign rule of the one and holy God, and to God, this part's important, to God, Belshazzar is found wanting. We're told that he's found wanting because in verses 18 through 21, he had all the knowledge he needed to submit to God. He was given sufficient knowledge. Daniel tells him, you knew about your father, right? Kingly father, predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, You knew the ways that he rebelled. You knew all the stories. You knew about him becoming a wild animal. You knew about his golden image. You, you knew all of those things. And yet you still did not humble yourself. It's this same knowledge of God that condemns us. We read Romans 1.25 earlier, but there's a few verses before that that I want to read now. Uh, we're going to read Romans 1, 18 through 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what, we can, be, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His, internal, his eternal power, his divine nat- and His divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so they are without excuse. Belshazzar was, out with, was, was without any excuse with what had been revealed to him and we are without any excuse for what has been revealed to us. Just like Belshazzar was found justly wanting, right? His wanting was a just judgment. We have a just judgment of being found wanting. We have a common rebellion with Belshazzar and we have a common judgment with Belshazzar. You see, there is evidence of God all around. So if you're not a Christian, this is to, to someone sitting here who's not a Christian. If you have not submitted your life to God, I want to say something. I don't, I don't know if we say this enough. You are going to die. There's going to be an end to your days. Christ is going to come, and He is going to judge. And if you are not in Him, you will be found wanting. you have no excuse. God's revealing himself to you all the time and this is God's gracious love to you. This is love. This is grace from God revealing himself to you. I mean, just think about ways every single day that God is revealing himself. When we're driving our cars 85 miles per hour down the highway, we have this awesome ability to do this and and not get in a car accident. I, I love to watch the NBA and when I see these guys shoot threes from the logos and make it into a, a tiny hoop that big, I mean, they're shooting from over there. This isn't just something by chance. God has designed us with these awesome abilities to do this. this is, that very basketball game is evidence that God exists. The fact that the earth is tilted at the exact perfect degree for life to happen and the and all the planets are spaced out exactly where they need to be, and our sun's the exact size with the exact heat for life to happen. This isn't something that happens by chance. This is creation. And all of this is pointing to God. So if you're not a Christian here, you're just ignoring this awesome, gracious gift that God has given you. And what I would tell you is, is, is listen to it. Submit your life to Him. But don't do it in your own way. The only way that it happens is through God's gracious mercy. He's going to call you to Him. And it's got to be through Christ. And if you have no idea what that means, just hold on, we're getting there. To the Christian, what does judgment mean for you? Because if your faith is in Christ, then this eternal damning judgment, it's handled. right? That, that is handled in Christ. So what does judgment mean? Me Well, one, it should have this response of <laughs> gratitude. God, thank you for calling me to you. Thank you for taking this judgment. But there's also these uh, like earthly judgments that we face. I was uh, listening to a, a lab. It's capital L, capital A, capital B by John Piper. He does these labs. They're called Look at the Books. Um, really quick side note. If you are studying the Bible and you don't have like, a good... Um, uh, commentary or, or something, ask for some recommendations, ask some people around here for some recommendations, and then so, so get, a, get a commentary as, as you read, and then also uh, these uh, labs have been really beneficial for me. John Piper just posts these videos on YouTube, you just go Google a passage, type in capital L, capital A, capital B, John Piper, put the passage in there, and more than likely there's, there's something about that passage he breaks down. So. That's just a little side note there, but I was, I was listening to one where he's breaking down 1 Peter 6-7. through 7. Uh, The verses there are, are this. I'm going to read them for you. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so what Piper argues in this is that the way the word "judgment is used throughout the, the rest of 1 Peter, the term "judgment's used a couple of times, the way it's used especially in, in reference to those who are in Christ's in Christ that term here, various trials, equals judgment. And so we, we face these judgments, or these, these tests of the reality of our faith, and it's not for he, this is, these are his words. I don't want to cr- take credit for this. Um, he says it's not for condemnation but for purification. It's not for condemnation, but for purification. So we're going to face trials on earth, and if we are in Christ, they are to bring us closer to Him. They are to make us more like Christ. And so the question that we have to ask, the question I asked myself when reading this passage, very convicting question I asked myself, and the question I'll ask you too, is are you acting When you face these trials, are you acting like someone who has this knowledge, who has submitted to Christ? God was gracious to Belshazzar through the knowledge of Nebuchadnezzar. And God is gracious to us as Christians in so many ways. He gives us His Word. He gives us His Word. So when we face these trials, are we testing how we respond in these trials to His Word? He gives us other people. He puts other people in our lives to speak into us. Um... Young people here. If you are young, uh, I don't know if I'm young or old. My students at school—I'm a teacher. They all tell me I'm old, and then my parents tell me I'm young. So I don't know. But young people, uh, have you sought out maybe an, an older disciple or a mentor, someone that can speak truth, someone that's going to point you to Scripture and, and help you walk through it? Just some other relationships. Um, husbands, husbands, are you uh, leading your wives? Are you submitting to Scripture? Are you, no matter, no matter what's, what's happened in your past, no matter where you've been, if you put your faith in Christ, husbands, step up, submit to Scripture, um, listen to your pastors, uh, seek out other, other men who, who are further along in this than you, and, and, and in, in a very humble way, submit to Christ so you can humbly lead your family. Wives, are you submitting to your husbands when they're doing this? Are you allowing your husbands to lead you? If, if you're not, if they if your husbands are truly submitting to Christ and you're not, then that is sin. Uh, are we listening to his uh, spirit when we're convicted? Right? So all these, these trials, when we face these trials, are we submitting to him in these trials? So so far we've established that we are like Belshazzar. We have a common rebellion. We're also like Belshazzar. We have a common verdict. We're, we're guilty. Um, we're all going to be judged. We're all going to be found wanting. So, so, again, you're probably sitting there saying, Ben, this is a pretty bleak message. It's probably uh, God's providence that it's nice and gray and rainy out today. But, um, there's hope. There is hope. Now for Belshazzar, why, why do we keep going? Why, why do we keep going to work, if, if, this is, if we're going to be judged and we're going to be guilty, why do we keep going to work? Why do we, why do we keep pursuing God? Why do we keep taking care of our families? Why, why don't we just give up or, or end it all now? For Belshazzar, that, that question, I mean, he didn't have time to ponder that. His, his judgment came pretty swiftly. Look at, look at verse 30. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. It's, it, is, it ends pretty bleak for Belshazzar. But let's look at Daniel. Uh, verses before that. Daniel ends up being clothed with purple. He gives the interpretation and Belshazzar clothes him with purple, gives him the chain of gold around his neck, makes a proclamation about him that he's the third ruler in the kingdom. I'm not trying to say that this, this is like the absolute main point of these two verses, but there's definitely imagery here. You can't ignore the imagery. The one who was unsubmit, was, was not submitting his life to, to God, Belshazzar, ends in death when judgment came and then Daniel who is submitting his life to God is elevated. All right, the one who humbled himself here is elevated when judgment comes and the one who raised himself here is brought low. There is hope. There's a lot of hope. I'm here to tell you that yeah you've rebelled and yes you are guilty of sin and there's nothing to be made light of that. But when the final judgment comes your verdict does not have to be the same as Belshazzar. There's something much better to look forward to. While Babylon is being ruled by the selfish and haughty and and pride-filled king whose judgment was guilty, there's a king who is selfless, whose judgment is innocent. And if we submit to him, we too are innocent. So what does that look like? What What does it look like to submit your life to Christ? Well, one... It's through only through the gracious work of God. It is through God, His grace, that you are called to Christ. Understand that. And then within that, within that understanding, within understanding that it is only God's grace operating in your heart, submit. Submit to what it says in the Bible. Submit to uh, Christ's life. Admit, right? Admit that you are guilty like Belshazzar. Admit that you have Rebelled. Admit that you have rebelled against God. Admit that. But seek repentance. Repent of that. That just looks like telling God, God, yeah, I have rebelled against you. I'm sorry. I've rebelled against you. I'm sorry, and I need Christ. Because Christ came. He humbled himself. He lived this perfect and blameless life. He didn't make the same choices that we made. He doesn't have a common rebellion with us. He doesn't have a common verdict with us. And because of that, because of that, if we are found in him, we will gain his verdict. I want to leave you with two verses. They're verses you have probably heard. But I think they're verses that hopefully can end this with a lot of encouragement in a sermon that has had a lot of bleakness. Uh, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Let's pray. Dear Lord, As we look at this story of Belshazzar, and we see that we are all guilty just like Belshazzar, that we have all rebelled just like him, help us then to not continue in our ways. Help us to not look at the evidence that you have given us and reject that. But God, help us to submit our lives to you. Help us to humble our lives, God, through your gracious Uh, work of Christ on the cross. Help us to look to that and submit to that. God, we love you and we're thankful for that. Amen.